As we are thinking together, as you know, about Keep Hope Alive, and we are surveying, as I mentioned a moment ago, we are surveying through the 42 chapters of the book of Job. Last Sunday, as I mentioned, we began in chapter number one where we were thinking about uh, Job's tragic losses, and his losses were uh, dramatic and tragic in every sense of the word. Uh, Chapter 1 describes, beginning in verse number 13 down through about verse number 22, it describes uh, his losses as the messengers, four of them, one after the other came, delivering the bad news of his losses. And then in chapter number 2, he loses uh, his health and the devotion of his wife as well. It was a catastrophic and unimaginable loss that Job endured Uh, in those two chapters. In fact, if you look at chapter number two and verse number eight, it concludes uh, this sad scene of misery uh, with Job having lost everything. Verse number eight says, he took to himself a a pot shirt. It's a broken piece of pottery. And uh, he sat down and just began to scrape uh, the sores and the boils uh, that were all over his body. In chapter two, verse number eight, his health is ruined His appearance has been dramatically changed by this uh, physical ailment. Uh, He's disfigured. His wealth has evaporated in a moment of time, literally. All ten of his children have died and are now buried, and his wife is mocking him. Now remember, as we think about that, and we, we talked about this last week, but I don't want you to forget that Job's suffering is not random, and neither is yours and, and neither is mine. Suffering is not random when we know that God is a sovereign God. Can, can we agree together that if God is truly sovereign, nothing in our lives is truly random? That God is at work in all things, and that these, these uh, sufferings of Job had a very divine, in fact, they had two very divine purposes. Write them down. We learned them last week. Number one, the first purpose of his suffering was to demonstrate the worthiness of God. This is in answer to the question that Satan asked God in chapter 1 and verse number 9 when he said, Satan says to God, does Job fear you for naught? The question is, does Job worship you for free? Is Job worshiping you because you're worth it? Or is Job worshiping you because you have paid him off? You've bought him off with your protection and your blessing and all the good things in his life. He knows those things come from you, and so he's responding to your presence, your gifts, by giving you worship. The challenge is, the criticism is, what Satan is saying is, hey God, you're not worthy to be worshiped just for who you are. And so this testing of Job, this suffering of Job was to prove, to demonstrate that God is in fact worthy of worship without all of those gifts that he gives. The second thing, second purpose of the suffering in Job's life was to test the motives of Job's devotion. It's really the the flip side of the same coin. On the one hand, is God worthy? On the other hand, do I understand the worthiness of God? What are my motives in my devotion? It's a good question for you and I to ask. What are your motives for being devoted to God? Do you have a price? Is there a degree of suffering at which you would say, I'm no longer going to believe in, trust in, to be devoted 
to God? What's your price? And for Satan, he challenged Job's devotion at the price of his health. He says in chapter number two, in verse number five, take away his health and he'll curse you to his face. That was his price, Satan thought. Now in the same way, that Job's suffering demonstrated the worthiness of God and tested Job's devotion, our suffering does the same. In the final analysis, and whatever the specific cause of my suffering or yours, all of our suffering is intended to test those two things or demonstrate those two things, the worthiness of God and our devotion to him. Now, lastly, last week we learned that there was a very specific response to the suffering that Job demonstrated, and we ought to be instructed by it. We should seek to respond to suffering in the same way that Job did. Do you remember how he responded? Number one, with worship. This is chapter 1, verse 20, I think, where it says that he sat down and worshiped God. He responded with worship. Number two, he responded in silence or with quiet Uh, We need to respond by being quiet when we suffer rather than charging God foolishly, rather than railing at God when we suffer. What are you doing? Who do you think you are? Don't you love me? Rather than railing at God, we should should be quiet and he will meet us in in our grief. And then the third thing that Job did and we ought to do is to cling to what we know to be true. Job did this. He maintained his integrity. He held on to what he knew to be true. So that was last Sunday, how he suffered, why he suffered, and how he responded in the suffering. Now today, I want us to think about keeping hope alive as we consider the important role that other people play in our keeping hope alive when we suffer. Here's the thing, none of us are islands, right? And so when we suffer, there are people around us, family members, friends, there are people around us who are, who are engaged in our suffering in some degree or another. They are speaking into our suffering in one way or another. And we need to learn to keep hope alive by listening to the right voices. Because when we suffer, there are some voices we need to receive and there are other voices that we need to tune out and not listen to. And so we're going to think about that today, keeping hope alive by listening to the right voices. Now, we're going to read just a few verses beginning in chapter number 2, in verse number 11. We'll read down through the end of the verse. Job 2, verse 11. So that verse says, Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that was come upon him, they came, every one of them, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together uh, to come and to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off, and they knew him not, that is, they saw Job, but they didn't recognize him, they, rent, uh, uh, they lifted up their voice and they wept. They tore everyone his mantle or his sash, they sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground for seven days and seven nights. And none of the three spoke a word unto Job, for they saw that his grief was great. 
let's, let's begin understanding what's going on with these three friends by recognizing the most beautiful thing that's happening in this passage. And I'm sad to tell you at the beginning of this message that we're going to recognize the beautiful thing at the beginning, but once you get out of chapter number two and three, the beauty of what's happening with these friends just evaporates. <laughs> this is the last p- part of the passage where you're going to see a lot of beauty in how they are speaking into Job's life. But let's, let's start with the beautiful part, okay? So write it down. Let's begin learning from these friends by thinking about the ministry, write it down, the ministry of mutual friendships. The ministry of mutual friendships. Now, I don't know how many people Job knew, of course. Um, I'm certain, though, that Job had many acquaintances. He had to have known a lot of people. And in all likelihood, because of his position in the community, remember chapter 1 told us he was the wealthiest man in all the East. He was well known. Uh, And so, so he would have been known by many more people than he knew, but certainly he had many acquaintances and, uh, and lots and lots of friends. And yet those friendships, those acquaintances, didn't serve him very well in his suffering. Hold your finger in chapter 2. We'll be right back to it. But let me take you over to chapter number 19 just quickly. Look at chapter 19 beginning in verse number 13. And what becomes apparent in these verses is that Job's family and his friends abandoned him uh, in his suffering. Chapter 19, verse 13, here's the testimony of Job. He says, he hath put my brethren far from me, and my acquaintances are estranged from me. Verse 14, my kinsfolk, my family, have failed. My familiar friends, my, my closer friends, they've forgotten me. Those that dwell in my house and my maids, these are my servants, they count me as a stranger I'm an alien in their sight. I called out to my servant. He didn't answer me. I entreated him. I begged him with my mouth. He he paid me no attention. Verse 17, my breath is strange to my wife, even though I entreated her for the children's sake. Yea, young children despised me. I rose and they spoke against me. All of my inward friends abhorred me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. I mean, you talk about a guy that's alone. I mean, you just read through those verses and and begin to circle. In fact, I did in my Bible, just start circling the relationships, my family, my brothers, my friends, my close friends, my acquaintances, my employees, my wife. I mean, you start circling the people who were around Job and he says, they've all abandoned me. They've all left me. Now it's likely that part of the reason that he was so abandoned by everybody had to do with his illness. It had to do with this sickness that he was enduring. We know from chapter 2 in the text we read a minute ago that when his three friends got to where he was, they didn't even recognize him. This illness has so disfigured him that he didn't even look like himself any longer. He had been, no doubt, grotesquely disfigured 
by this sickness. And so family and friends and acquaintances and employees and and young children would have pointed and covered their faces and run away. They were in all likelihood afraid of the sickness that he had. If they got too close, they might catch it. Maybe they were just repulsed by what he saw. Some people believe that he in all likelihood had one of these three uh, diseases, leprosy, which of course we know people would have drawn away from. Leprosy grotesquely disfigures a person's face and hands and, and, uh, and uh, feet. Um, it might have been, some people believe, just by the descriptions throughout the book of Job, elephantiasis, elephant man disease. You've heard of that perhaps. Again, disfigures the body. Um, Some believe it could have been smallpox or even perhaps a flesh-eating bacteria. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, the the point is he he was so covered and so grotesquely disfigured, so offensive in his appearance and perhaps the, the odor that came with that and the fear that people had, they just pulled away from him. Chapter 19 describes how that everybody has abandoned him. However, You don't have to be physically disfigured for people to draw away from you when you're suffering, do you? It doesn't have to have anything to do with your appearance. Sometimes, sometimes when when we suffer, the people who ought to be with us in that suffering don't know what to say, and so they say nothing at all. And they don't know how to come close and enter into our suffering with us. And so they withdraw and they pull back. And very many people who endure hardships realize that those people that I thought were the closest to me, they aren't around anymore. Well, That was Job's experience. Everybody pulled away. Except for, go back to chapter 2, except for his three friends. Thank God for these three friends. At least in the beginning, thank God for these three friends. Look at them. uh, Chapter 2, verse number 11. I want you to circle their names. They're so important in Job's story. Verse 11 says, they they came from their own place. Here here are their names. Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite. Bildad is the second one. He's the Shuite. Some have said he's the shortest man in the Bible. Bildad the Shoe height. It's a really bad joke. I'm sorry. It's really bad. Number three, Zophar. Zophar, the Bible says, is the Namathite. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I don't want you to ever forget their names. We, we know almost nothing about them, honestly. We know very, very little about them. Uh, we, don't know, we don't know how they knew Job. We don't know how they knew one another. We don't know what their, you know, what their history was together, how they became uh, such good friends, as the Bible calls them. They're his three friends. Um, we don't know where they lived. Uh, you, know, you might imply or infer some things from uh, their, their designations as a Temanite and a, and a Shuite and a Namathite, but honestly, it's speculation. So we don't really know where they lived. Apparently, they didn't live in the same place because they had to come together uh, from their own places. Um, again, we don't know how they knew Job, but here's what we know. Obviously, they cared for Job. Obviously, he meant a lot to them. Because the Bible says in verse number 11 that when they heard of his suffering. Now, loved ones, everybody heard of Job's suffering. Nobody can suffer like Job and, and the word not spread. 
But these three got word somehow that their friend Job had been suffering. And when they heard the story, they, they communicated to one another. Again, I don't know how they communicated. I'm not sure how far apart they lived. We know they didn't text or send an email. But somehow they communicated and they said, we've got to respond. We've got to go help our friend. So they came together, verse number 11 says. They made an appointment, a time and a place that they were going to meet and they would come together to Job. And look at verse number 11. It tells us their purpose in coming. That they would come to him to mourn with him and to comfort him. They're going to enter into his suffering. They're going to weep with him. And they are going to bring consolation to him. Help him carry his burden. Well, thank God. I mean, listen, we'll talk about it in a second. They failed miserably in this agenda. But at least in the beginning, their motives were right. They came together as his mutual friends to serve him, to help him. This is the ministry of mutual friendship. It is when when friends are shared in a group and one person in that group suffers, then the others within that group understand or they know the suffering. In fact, this is what verse number 13 tells us. At the end of verse number 13, it says that they saw that his grief was great. Do you ever feel like nobody sees you? Nobody sees your hurting. Nobody sees your suffering. Nobody sees your pain. If you want someone to see your suffering, then then you need this ministry of mutual friendship in your life where you've invested in some relationships and you have seen the suffering of others. And you've entered into their suffering, and now that mutual friendship produces a return on that investment. And when you suffer, they see your suffering. I, I just want to apply this. I want to help you, you know, put some handles on this. How can you and I, when we go through hardships, when we go through suffering, we need to keep hope alive. How can we have mutual friendships that will sustain us? Well, we do it. By building those friendships before we suffer. This is the beauty of group life in a local body. It's the beauty of the body of Christ. You know, in in very, very many churches, you get that from the entire church. The average worshiping congregation on a Sunday morning in North America is about 82, 83 people. So in most churches in North America, every person in the church knows every person in the church, and and there is that opportunity for fellowship just with the whole church. You and I, at at a church like Brookstone, we need to be more intentional to build those relationships in group life because it's it's in our small groups that we build those mutual friendships and those friendships then minister to us in the time of suffering. You'll never know everybody that you go to church with. And everybody you go to church with will never know you intimately. But there will be a few, if you'll make that investment, who will know you. And the benefit that we receive in group life is the same benefit that Job could have received from these three friends had they been faithful in their call. We, would have received, we can receive the benefit of, of that mutual concern, like when we hurt, they hurt. Scripture says this, that when one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one weeps, we all weep. It is that mutual concern. I know you. You know me. We care about one another in group life. It is mutual concern. It's, 
It's a combining of efforts and gifts to alleviate that suffering. When one person suffers and there's a group of people around that person, then the group, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, have the ability to be strategic, to plan, to have a a strategy about how we're going to come together. We're going to help our suffering friend. That happens in group life. When When we're connected in group life, it allows us to concentrate our prayer support and to hold one another up. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> if you could stop the book of Job, like at verse 13, you would go, wow, what an awesome story of how Job found help. It's this ministry of mutual friendship. Do you have it? Do you, do you, do you participate in mutual friendships in group life? I hope you do. If you don't, take a step. Get connected. Um, let us help you do that. We can help you. Secondly, I want you to notice in Job uh, chapter number two, the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence without words. Again, a beautiful thing that occurs in Job's suffering from the ministry of his friends. The Bible tells us in verses 12 and 13 that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar arrive at the place where Job is sitting in ashes all along having lost everything, and they are stunned. They are shocked by what they see. Their friend, Job, is barely recognizable to them. They see that his grief is great. And what do they do? They just begin to weep. I mean, they're so brokenhearted. They, they love this guy. And when they see him hurting so deeply, They do what any of us would do. They just come near him and they just, the tears begin to flow and they they begin to weep. And I can just see these friends coming and and just, you know, Job's sitting and they're just grabbing him around the shoulder and hugging on him and 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 just sitting down around him. They just form a, a circle. And they sit with him. The Bible says that they weep and they sit. Look at verse 13. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And they didn't say a word. Seven days and seven nights, they only wept and didn't speak. And do you know what? These are the best seven days that they spent with him. This was the most effective ministry that they had in his life. Was before they ever opened their mouth to speak a word. Listen to me. When you and I are suffering, when hope begins to drain away out of our lives, we can find our hope buckets being refilled simply by the presence of friends. Not what they say, not the platitudes that they deliver, not the not, not the wisdom with which they speak, simply with their presence. And when you know somebody who's suffering, the greatest thing that you can do for that close friend or family member, that, that person whom you're in, in group with, that person that you love, the greatest thing that you can do is not come barreling in with a bunch of talk. It's just to be there. I think I've told you the story before of when I was a young pastor, the very first time I ever dealt with the death in the church, I was 20, 21 years old. And a guy in the church, the only other church I ever served, I was pastoring that other church, and, and, and a guy died. And I went up the street, lived just up the street from the church, and I went up 
to, to be with his wife and his kids and, and his kids were grown. He had grandkids and and I'd heard stories about other pastors that I knew, how that they would walk into a situation like that and they would just bring the peace of God. They would just speak with such profound wisdom. And I thought, I'm going to do that, man. I'm going to go in and just, just gonna, it's going to be palpable. You're going to feel peace. And I just walked in and I started talking and talking and talking until the Lord, and I'm not making this up, the Lord almost audibly. You ever have the Lord almost speak to you audibly? I've never heard him audibly, but this was close. He said to me, Jim, shut up. <laughs> Seriously, shut up. And after about 30 minutes of rambling and bambling and doing nothing but irritating people, I just shut up and sat down next to his wife. And that sitting in silence ministered to her more than any word that I had spoken. These guys were serving their friend. They were helping him just by being present. It's, it's the ministry of presence, just being there. And by the way, we, we should recognize, right, that this ministry of presence is exemplified for us by our Heavenly Father. That's what he does. He's not always speaking, but he's always present. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 5. It says, For God has said, I will never leave thee, and never forsake thee. Does that give you comfort and peace when you're suffering and you don't have the answers and God's not giving you clear direction, but you know that he's with you? John 14 and verse number 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. There's beauty in that and there's ministry in simply being present. Well, these three friends came. God bless them. They came with the right motives. They wanted to comfort. They wanted to, to console. They wanted to weep with him help bear his burden. They sit with him silently for seven days. And finally, after seven days, Job breaks the silence. Job chapter number three, beginning in verse number one, the Bible says, and so finally after seven days, Job opened his mouth and began to speak. Now you need to know that beginning in chapter three, verse number one, and for the next 27 chapters, 27 chapters, what is recorded is the conversation between Job and his three friends. In truth, it's more of an argument than it is a conversation. But it's a back and forth, point, counterpoint, between Job and his three friends. And it's recorded in poetic language. Um, it, there's three rounds of it. Job speaks in chapter 3, verse 1. And when Job finishes speaking, now the three friends begin to reply to what he said. Eliphaz goes first. We assume he's the oldest. He goes first. Then Job answers Eliphaz. And then Bildad speaks. And then Job answers Bildad. And then Zophar speaks. And, and, uh, and that's the end of round 1. And then round 2 begins when Job answers Zophar. And so Eliphaz, and then Job, and then Bildad, and then Job, and then Zophar. That's the end of round two. And then round three begins. Job answers Zophar, and then Eliphaz speaks, and Job speaks, and Bildad speaks, and Job speaks, and, and Zophar sits out the third round. He's had it. But it's, it's 27 difficult, poetic, strange chapters. And we're going to deal with each of them verse by verse today. <laughs> no, not really. 
<laughs> Somebody said, praise God, he's kidding. Yeah. What I do want to do, though, seriously, is, is let you hear Job speak in chapter 3. And really, I mean, there's no other way to say it. In Job chapter number 3, he pours out his anguished soul to his friends. Seven days of silence, he knows they're with him. They, he's felt some encouragement. He's, got, he's built up the ability to now speak, and he pours out his anguished soul. He says three things. Write them down. In chapter number 3, he says, number one, I wish I'd never been born. We should have never been born. And really, this is the first 19 verses, but it's summarized beautifully, sadly, in verse 3. Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. In other words, I wish that day of my conception and the day of my birth, I wish those days were never on the calendar. I wish they just hadn't happened. I don't know, maybe you're sitting here today and you're under a similar kind of burden. You're, you're carrying such a weight. You're, you're thinking like, it'd been better if I'd never been born. That's the way Job felt. Second thing that Job says in chapter number three is, I wish I could die. I wish I could die. Uh, let me show you this, verse number 20. Job chapter three, verse number 20 says, Wherefore, Job asks, why is light given to him that is in misery and life unto the one that is bitter in soul, which long for death, but it will not come, which dig for death more than for hidden treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. He's saying, I wish I'd never been born, and now that I have been born, I wish I could just die. I have no doubt that I'm speaking to people this morning in the room and online and at Merriman. I'm speaking to people this morning who have considered, perhaps are considering, and maybe have even attempted suicide. You've reached such a place in your life, there have been these moments, maybe you're in the middle of it now, where you say, it would be better for me if I could die, it would be better for the people around me, the world would be better off if I didn't exist. I want you to listen to your pastor. If you're listening, shout amen. Listen to this pastor this morning. Banish the thought. Run to Jesus. Run like you've never run before to Jesus. Because I want you to know that the grief and the heartache and the despair that you're feeling right now, which would cause you to consider taking your life, that despair and grief will not last forever. It will not always be this way. You will not always feel this way. The word of God says weeping may endure for the night, but hang on because joy is coming in the morning. Hang on. Press through. Secondly, you need to know that Jesus can give you true joy. If you're living with despair that would, that would cause you to even give thought to the possibility of suicide, know this, that there is a Savior. Maybe you've met him, maybe you haven't met him, but this Savior can give you truly abundant life. John 10, 10, Jesus said, this is why I came, that you might have life, not death, that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it more abundantly, don't consider don't consider harming yourself. Jesus came to give you abundant life. And thirdly, I would say to you, don't consider taking your life because, listen, 
You're not the Lord of life. Let the Lord be the Lord, okay? The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed, it is reserved to man once to die. There is a date of death reserved for all of us, but we don't determine it. He has determined that day. Run to Jesus and find joy in him. Job said, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I could die. And the third thing that Job says in chapter number three in anguish is my greatest fears have been realized. Verse number 24, for my sighing comes before I eat. My roarings, my sobs are poured out like water for the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me and that of which I was afraid is come unto me. My greatest fears have been realized. And so in his anguish, Job pours his heart out to his friends. These men who came to him, who made an appointment in their mutual friendship, and out of their deep love and concern for him, they came to give him comfort and to help him. And they answer, they speak, beginning in chapter number 4, verse 1, Then Eliphaz Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, and there you have it, chapter 4, verse 1, the beginning of these responses. And these friends speak to Job. But listen, they speak with all the wrong voices. They say all the wrong things. So let me close by pointing out to you from from these verses the misery of misguided voices. And that's not, I didn't say ministry. I said the ministry of mutual friendships and the ministry of presence without words, but the misery of misguided voices. Turn over to chapter number 16. The word misery is not my word. It's Job's word. And it's a fitting word. Job chapter number 16. Now listen, before we read these verses in Job, let me just say to you, if we're going to keep hope alive in the midst of our deep suffering, we've got to learn to listen to the right voices, okay? Because people are going to speak into our suffering and, and we have to learn how to discern what's the right voice and what's the wrong voice. And when you get to the middle of round two of these arguments back and forth, in the middle of round two, which is chapter number 16, Job has had it. And he calls his friends out for their miserable advice. Look at it, verse number one, chapter 16, verse one. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. (laughs) I love it. Here's the way we might, with friends like these, who needs enemies? You guys are the worst comforters ever You're miserable comforters, he says. Compare that to chapter 2, verse 11. Let us, these three friends, they heard about it. They talked, they made a plan. We're going to meet, we're going to go, and we're going to go so that we can comfort him. And by the middle of round two, he says, you're you're terrible at this comforting thing. You're awful. And in fact, he goes on to say in verse number 3, shall vain words have an end? Will you ever quit talking? What emboldens you that you talk to me this way? He's saying in verse number three, who do you think you are? Verse number four, I could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul stead, if you were sitting in my seat, I could heap up words against you. Verse number four is telling. I could shake my head at you, which means what have they been doing? 
You ever talk to somebody and the minute you start talking, they just start going. You see this in round one, round two, Job start every time he starts speaking, they're like, oh, good grief, here he goes again. I can, he says, I could shake my, heads, my, my head at you. Look at verse five. But if you were in my place, I would strengthen you with my mouth. The moving of my lips would assuage your grief. That's how you know the right voice. Because the right voices bring strength and the right voices assuage or eliminate or alleviate grief. That brings hope. My hope remains alive when I am strengthened and my, the weight of my grief is lightened. And so, without exegeting 27 chapters of argument, let me close by giving you two, just simply two things that will help you identify those who are not speaking with the right voices, just drawn from these 27 chapters. Let me give you two things. You can always know that the person doing these things are not, that person's not helping you. All right, number one, those who are not helping us find hope are those who condemn without cause. This is what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did. They condemned Job and there was no cause to condemn him. In fact, you will be stunned. If you haven't read through all these 27 chapters, you should go do it. You will be stunned at what you read. I mean, at the very beginning, chapter four, right out of Eliphaz's mouth, first word, he says, remember, he's the oldest. He says, well, let me tell you what I've learned in all my years of wisdom. Nobody suffers like this without it being the punishment of God. Now, Job, I don't know what you're hiding. It's sort of a softball condemnation. I don't know what you're hiding, but I know you're hiding something. Because this wouldn't be happening to you if you weren't sinning. And from there, it gets worse. I mean, they just, it's like the argument just just, uh, gets worse and worse and worse until they're now hurling, by the time you come to the end of round three, they're hurling accusations like these. At one point, one of the three friends says, you know what? You deserve more than you're getting. I don't have to lose anything more. What more are they going to take? You deserve worse from God. More than once, on two, I think, occasions, the friends say this, your kids got what they deserved. What they say? This is how you know somebody's not helping you when they condemn without cause, when they make assumptions about why someone is suffering. Number two, you are not being helped to hold on to hope when someone hurts without healing. When someone simply wants to win an argument, they simply want to make a point and they're not healing. They're not helping. Now listen, sometimes the words of a friend hurt, right? Proverbs tells us this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the the truth has to be spoken in love and sometimes the truth hurts. But the intent of the words is to help. It's to build up. But when somebody simply wants to make a point, they don't care about your healing, then they are not helping you. So when you're hurting, listen to the voices that strengthen. Listen to the voices that speak truth in love. Listen to the voices that are concerned about healing. 
Listen to the voices that want to alleviate your grief, not heap on your grief, pile on grief onto you. And those who speak the truth in love and point you to Jesus are the ones who will help you. And when you know someone who is suffering, you be that one who will minister to them with your presence. And you be that one who, like Job says in chapter 16, I will not shake my head at you and I will speak words that will strengthen you and words that will assuage your grief. If you do that, here's what happens. When the, when the holes are drilled in the hope bucket and the hope begins to drain out, then when the right words are spoken, you know, Ecclesiastes, is it Ecclesiastes that says that the right words fitly spoken will bring beauty. And so it'll begin to fill our hope buckets back up when we listen to the right voices. If you understand, would you shout amen? amen? May God help us to do it. Now, there are right voices, and there's a right voice in Job's life as well. Not perfect, but right. And it's spoken by one other person, not called a friend, just another person in the text whose name is Elihu. And we'll hear from Elihu next week.